Hello, and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ahir Shah. The world is electrifying. To avoid the worst of a climate catastrophe, the world will have to move from the fossils that have fueled growth since the Industrial Revolution to the commodities and materials of the future. But where do these resources come from and who controls them? To what extent can clean end products mask dirty supply chains? Joining me to discuss this is Henry Sanderson. Henry previously covered mining and commodities for the Financial Times and is the author of the recent book Vault Rush, The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green. Henry, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks for having me on. Now, Henry, could you first give us perhaps a brief sense of the scale of the transition that's required for a cleaner future and the sorts of materials that we're going to need in order to build it? Yeah, so this is um, you know a massive transition. If you if you look at you know the number of cars on the road, you know, and and you look at how long cars last for, you know, it's going to take a long time to move move the whole fleet to go electric. But but politicians, you know, have have ambitious targets, right? Which which will mean we need to move very quickly this decade. So it, it's an unprecedented um, transformation. You know, Biden set a target of fifty percent electric vehicle sales um, in the US by twenty thirty. Yet at the moment. In terms of supply chains for those EVs, the US produces, you know, very little and is very reliant on on, on other countries. So, yeah, it's not just a matter of, um, you know, easily switching the cars. You need to sw- completely change the supply chain. You need to have new battery factories, new mines, new processing facilities. It's a really big change. And the, and the other thing is, on top of all this, this all needs to be done in a green, low-carbon way. So you not only have to rebuild a new supply chain, you have to rebuild in a green, sustainable way. Yes, you write in your book about, uh, for example, lithium factories where batteries are being produced that have gigantic coal plants attached to them in China and other places around the world. And is that the sort of thing that we're going to need to sort of change to get further down the supply chain solving the problem? Yeah, so I think you put it really well in your intro, which is, you know, these the fact that a lot of green products mask dirty supply chains. And I think this isn't necessarily the fault of the green products. I think for, for, for too long, we've sort of offshored huge parts of our supply chains. And the, many of the products we use in our daily life, if you look at them, have a sort of dirty supply chain. And a huge reason for this is we've offshored so much to China and coal is so critical to China. So of course, when when you look at electric vehicle batteries, a lot is processed in China, a lot of batteries are built in China. And until recently, you know, most of this was was from coal fired power. So I remember visiting lithium processing in China. And, you know, of course, it was coal fired power. It looked like just any other industrial plant in China. So these are sort of hidden supply chains that I talk about in the book. Indonesia is another example where you know the country runs on coal yeah this is where most of the nickel for the electric vehicle batteries is going to come from so you've got these really quite dirty supply chains Um, but as i say the challenge is not only speed and scale we need to massively expand these supply chains and in the case of us and europe create entirely new ones but we need to do it in a greener way so this is a huge challenge you know it may be easy to green your coffee or you know the aluminium can you use to buy your drink these days, but it's much more difficult when you're talking about mines and energy intensive industries that we rely on. And to bring you just back to the point that you mentioned about the nickel in Indonesia, I was struck in your book when you wrote about the fact that companies wanting to move away from doing business with Congolese cobalt mines, where there was widespread child labor, reformulated batteries to include more of this nickel instead. It's like, all right, we're not going to use this uh, cobalt, we'll use the nickel instead. And then that leads to vast swathes of environmental 
degradation and desolation in Indonesia. Exactly. So it, it feels like, is, is this an industry that's at the moment just sort of pushing a problem from one place to another around the world? Well, well I think this is, this is the problem that at the moment we face this exponential increase in demand, right, for, for electric vehicles, for batteries. And you're right, often what looks like a solution ends up being a problem. And the reason is, I go back to scale, is that you know, you need so much of this nickel, you need so much of this cobalt. So even if you switch, you reduce the amount of cobalt, even if you still have a little cobalt on the battery, the number of batteries on the road means you're still going to need a lot of cobalt from the DRC, right? You know, we shouldn't lose all hope. There are technological advancements. There's a type of battery called lithium iron phosphate battery that's popular in China, which uses no nickel or cobalt. Um, so it has lithium and iron, which are you know abundant elements. But again, you get less range with this battery. So then it's down to consumer preference, right? A lot of Chinese consumers are willing to have less range for city driving. But what about Americans? You know, what about Europeans? And then it's a question of, well, if we want to satisfy our need for huge, big SUVs to be electric, then we're going to need nickel and cobalt, which in turn causes more environmental destruction. So the consumer is definitely not absent um, in this debate either. And this is why I wrote the book. So let's open our eyes to, to what's going on. The story of this transition that we're living through the sort of early stages of feels fundamentally like a Chinese story, right? As though China has moved considerably quicker than everyone else off the starting blocks. And the, the speed of this is just astonishing. For example, until the year 2000, 90% of the world's lithium batteries were produced in Japan. And now that's overwhelmingly done in China. Is this the case? Like, has, has this domination really, firstly, is there really a domination now among Chinese firms? And how has it managed to happen quite so quickly? Yeah, it's a really good question. So yes, there is, you know, China at the moment, you know, where they have the dominance is in the refining and processing and in the battery production. It's not like China is blessed, you know, geologically with huge deposits, economic deposits of cobalt or lithium or nickel. No, where, where it sort of has its dominance is the importing of these raw materials and processing them, which, as I said before, is often a dirty industry. And then in making the battery materials, and then in making the batteries, that's where China's sort of dominance is. But at the raw material level in these other countries, the Congo, Indonesia, Chile, Argentina, Chinese companies have also invested in, in mines. You know, it's not, it's not such a dominance, but they do have quite sizable investments in mines. So at the moment, China has, yeah, pretty much all stages of the supply chain, either a very good presence or a dominant presence. And it happens too quickly because Chinese companies, and it has been private companies that have driven a lot of this, have moved incredibly quickly. They've raised a lot of money. They've raised a lot of capital. And the political signal has been there slightly earlier than in Western countries. And they really get behind that in China. And uh, I would say, you know, not hope, not all hope is lost. The US has just passed this a big Inflation Reduction Act, which aims to turbocharge, you know, US refining of critical minerals, production of critical minerals. And this is a good step. And Europe and the European Union's done a done a similar thing. But the road ahead is hard. This is not an easy thing to catch up on, but it's certainly, you know, we're going we're going in the right direction. On your comment of the fact that China is not necessarily in itself blessed with a huge abundance of some of these raw materials, but is involved in the mining and the processing of them. It really struck me the extent to which a lot of, like, you know, looking at things that are happening in the Congo at the moment, for example, 
And the the fact that transition to new materials sparked this desire to dominate production and sort of close off uh, elements of the market for a country. And I, I thought a lot uh, reading your book about uh, the way that the Royal Navy moved from coal to oil in the early part of the 20th century and the impacts that had on, right, well, we don't have oil ourselves. Therefore, what does this mean for our colonial possessions and what do we have to do to those places? And do you think it is fair or in what way would you say that this was different to an almost sort of imperial sort of thing that's going on at the moment? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, you know, China has for sure locked up a lot of this supply chain and and their eventual goal is, you know, what Xi Jinping wants is he wants advanced manufacturing, he wants clean energy. These are the sort of industries that he's that he's targeted. And yes, China eventually wants to produce sort of high value electric vehicles and export them to the world. And of course, if you've got a sizable amount of the supply chain in China, that gives you a lot of cost advantage, a lot of leverage. You know, the question where it fits into sort of China's, you know, political ambitions globally, I think there is a sort of shadow Cold War going on in places like the Congo, you know, in South America over these mineral resources. And I think China's presence in these supply chains has helped you know, has helped it politically. And you look at some somewhere like Indonesia, I mean, almost all the nickel industry is run by these by these Chinese companies. So of course, they have greater political influence, right? And, and I think a lot of these countries are sort of caught, they don't want to be totally uh, reliant to China. So they're also trying to hedge themselves a bit. And the US now is becoming more engaged in this whole supply chain. So we are seeing a lot more geopolitical elements of, of the supply chain coming to the fore. You know, the big question is, what is the risk to the West of having so much of the supply chain in, in Chinese hands? You know, what would happen if there was invasion of Taiwan? I think we're coming to grips with some of the risks of this. And I, I wouldn't put it past China to use some of this supply chain for leverage. But also, we may well see a lot of these companies, you know, why wouldn't they supply Chinese EV makers more favorably than, than Western EV makers, right? And China's also the biggest EV market. So there's no doubt in my mind that China wants its own EV electric vehicle brands to, to be dominant in this market, right? And we could see the supply chain favor some of them. So setting aside what it means for, say, the Western consumer as to where the supply chain is centered and so what, what does it mean for the people on the ground in the Congo, in Indonesia, in Chile, I know that these are going to be vastly different places, but what does it mean for the people sort of living and working in these environments? On the ground, the um, the impact is, is huge, right? Because in places like the Congo, a lot of the a lot of the projects, a lot of the mines um, have Chinese involvement or Chinese ownership. So you're dealing directly with with a Chinese company. You're dealing directly with their labor standards, with their way of of doing things that might be quite different to to Western companies. You know, same is true in Argentina. Chile, not so much, but you know, it's the Chinese uh, way of doing things that is is right there on the ground. You know, just to give an example: when you fly, when I flew to DRC, you know, I'd say eighty percent of my flight was was Chinese. You know, you just these these are places where the West has just been, with a few exceptions. You know, we just haven't we haven't been there on the ground, right? And I think on the ground in these countries, it does create a lot of resentment. There are complaints about the Chinese way of doing things, the Chinese, you know, labor standards. And all this hopefully will become more transparent the more that car makers like Tesla and others push for this transparency and push for greater openness about what's going on in this supply chain. Mm. 
Well, I suppose also some of these countries are places where the West very much, or European powers in particular, were very much on the ground in the 19th and 20th centuries, and that caused yeah. a whole host of problems and horrors. And now sort of, once again, a, a sort of extractive industry has come along once more, but the extractive industry of the 21st century leading once again to child labor, exploitation and things in these mines. That's true. There, there is the hope. And the book, I think, is trying to make this point that because it is an electric vehicle that these minerals are going into, you know, my hope is that we should care more, right? And mm. we should be more able to drive change than we did with, you know, our smartphones that still contain cobalt, right? But no one seemed to give a shit or other other electronic products that we used, right? But, but because it is a green product, we have this opportunity to engage and, and you know, improve conditions on the ground. I think you're going to see automakers like Tesla and others do many more visits to these countries, to these mine sites and see for themselves. And just having that that pressure, I think, will, will, will help considerably. I think there is room for everyone to, and automakers and, and everyone to get much more engaged, you know, with, with this issue. And I, and I think the number one thing also about mining is, you know, we have to decide also as a society that, you know, mining is not without impact. It's always going to have an impact. You know, what kind of impact are we willing to tolerate to deal with to get the products that we want and we need right in order to reduce carbon emissions there is going to be an impact on these supply chains and the problem is sometimes when you have an ngo or someone else you know very rightly points out the problems in these supply chains that this is what happened with child labor and cobalt sometimes the producer's reaction is just to run away from the country right and run away from the problems and just as you said earlier, get cobalt out of the supply chain. And I don't think that's the right approach. I think we need to engage, we need to improve, but we also need to be aware that there will be some impacts involved in this process. You know, it doesn't come for free. Given the events sort of of the last couple of years and sort of since the pandemic, the word that you associate, if if someone says the words supply chain, the sentence is finished with problems, right? <laughs> and the, the fractures that we're seeing in a world that had becoming steadily, increasingly globalized over decades and everything, there are now fissures and fractures that have once again only been exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Do you think that we're moving to a slightly less globalized world in terms of these resources? And if so, what does that mean for these commodities and products? So I think we're heading to quite dangerous territory because I think, in my mind, US and European politicians have said they want to decouple from Chinese supply chains before thinking of a strategy or having an alternative in place. And, and we've seen this with the US Inflation Reduction Act. It sets very ambitious targets for domestic critical minerals, US, uh, North American supply chain, but almost unachievable targets, right? So, you know, I think we need to come up with a more realistic strategy that that accepts that we are going to be quite reliant on China for the next few years. But at the same time, we need to promote our own industries. I think, you know, we're heading into slightly dangerous territory if we just immediately want to decouple, right? And I think the risk is that the cost of products and the cost of green, clean energy technologies could go up, right? What they're calling greenflation. You know, if you if you localize too quickly or you try to localize in a rush or try to localize everything, right? You know, costs are, are going to go up, right? And we're going to see more volatility in commodity prices. We're going to see, you know, a lot more of the 
cost impacts. And we're already seeing that seeing that now. So I think we're heading in quite, yeah, I think it's quite dangerous uh, territory at the moment. You write that those who control the resources we'll need in vast quantities to avoid the catastrophic impact of climate change will be the new Rockefellers. Now, as it stands, who are the new Rockefellers at the moment? Yeah, well, um, there's quite a few sort of hidden billionaires I write about in the book, actually. And, you know, I think you could consider them the new Rockefellers. You know, Robert Friedland is a fascinating billionaire who was college friends with Steve Jobs. And he, you know, he he built a massive new copper mine in the DRC. So when you look at copper, which we're going to need in, in greater amounts for, you know, you think about all the copper wires in your house, right? We're going to need, we, if we're going to electrify everything, we need tons of copper. Um, so he's a sort of interesting character I write about. Then in lithium, you know, We've seen this Chinese company, Ganfeng Lithium, no one ever heard of them a few years ago. You know, they're, they're sort of another hidden billionaires. They control huge amounts of, of lithium. They've made big investments in Argentina, Australia, Africa now. You know, these sort of the hidden interesting companies that, that have controlled this new supply chain. And then, and then in nickel, you know, we have this, this company I write about, which is the world's biggest stainless steel producer that's also going into batteries. Again, a sort of hidden company that, you know, you never knew that produces most of stainless steel in the world, but it's also big in in nickel and batteries. So these are kind of Rockefellers of, of the age. And we're seeing new ones uh, in the US, right? I write about Tesla co-founder, J.B. Straubel, who's formed this very interesting company to, to recycle minerals in the US for batteries. So we're just at the beginning stages of this transition, but these are some of the, the new billionaires that we're seeing crop up. And is there really any hope for what one might think would be an equitable thing where the the wealth of this might actually go to the people from whose countries this mineral wealth is being extracted, right? Like one of the things that's really missing on this list of the new Rockefellers or yeah. is basically like the Congolese people. Yes. I think that's a really good question. And I think the Congo at the moment is trying to renegotiate a lot of its contracts, you know, look again at some of the deals it's signed with the Chinese and, and get a better deal, right? Essentially get a better deal. And I think there is a role and the US is stepping up now. There is a role for the West to to come in more proactively and try to to structure, you know, these mineral resources so they they do get a better deal in the in these countries. Because I think a lot of Chinese companies, when they go overseas, I think they do do business a lot like they, they do at home, or well, they don't necessarily think a lot about the sort of broader questions of how can the local people benefit more. But, but, but that's changing now. You know, you know, ESG gets a bad rap, right, from a lot of people at the moment. But ESG, I think, has actually been quite helpful for, for Chinese companies once they realize that, oh, wait, the investors care about this, money cares about this, then, then it's something they can pay more attention to. But I think your question is 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 a really pertinent one, which is how do you avoid not repeating the resource curse of, of the past, right? And because in many ways this is this is a similar scramble. You're you know, you're digging up stuff, right, at the end of the day, which is similar to past resource booms. And my only hope is that because it is clean energy and, and green technology, that we have more consumer pressure, more transparency that could help local people get a better deal. I do think that that is going to happen because I do think it's fundamentally difficult for an automaker to sell an electric vehicle with a dodgy supply chain. I just think that they can't sleep at night because they're worried, you know, some NGO is going to expose them. You know, I do think that is a really fundamental good thing. 
And my only hope is it does change so that people in these these countries can benefit. But the governments of these countries are also keenly aware, right? This is a once in a hundred year transition. They're keenly aware. DRC knows they have they're the Saudi Arabia of cobalt, right? They got one chance to to make this to get the benefits of of this cobalt, and they want to. So that's that's the, the governments need to step up and also create a better deal. And we've seen in Chile, it's really interesting. You know, we've seen this huge, you know, left leftward move in Chile. Um, they're you know rewriting the constitution. You know, mining is a big part of that, right? The inequalities in the country. How can the mining industry? pay more play a bigger role in, in in dealing with some of these inequalities so that's 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 wrapped up in this clean energy transformation as well finally henry you write that the oil age has left a long scar on the 20th century and we should make sure that the industries of our green future do much better so to close are you optimistic yes i am optimistic and i think what we're going to see is that by mid-century we can also have a lot of recycling of, of materials and I think recycling is a huge opportunity to sort of close the loop a bit more, um, rely less on on primary extraction. But before we get to that point, we we're going to need a lot more mining. And these this is the critical decade, this decade, next decade, where we have to build these supply chains in in, in a greener way. And and I am optimistic because you know the U.S. this recent bill by the U.S. as a, ambitious as it is, um, it will it will incentivize people to get into this business. And that's what we need. You know, the West has so much talent. We have so much potential. But, you know, instead of people making apps and, and things like that, we perhaps need people to work on these hard problems of, of clean energy because this, this isn't easy. Um, and also decarbonizing industry. A lot of these are industrial processes. This is a really tough problem. So I'm really optimistic that we will apply our talents uh, to this sphere. You know, we can be part of this problem, this solution. And I think we can do much better than than the fossil fuel era. You know, it's a much more difficult transition um, in a way. But you know, everyone's everyone's invested in it, and I think we are seeing signs that you know politics in the U.S. is getting behind this, Europe's behind this. We're at that stage where we can't go back now. So, uh, yeah, I am optimistic. And final, final question, Henry. Are we ever actually going to get any lithium in Cornwall? <laughs> yeah, I think we will. I think we definitely will. I think it's going going the right direction. I don't think it would ever be a huge part of the market. But, you know, lithium prices are crazy high at the moment. So when you've got high prices, a lot of things work. So I'm, I'm optimistic about that too. Henry Sanderson, thank you very much for joining me in The Bunker. Thanks so much. Henry's book, Vault Rush, is out now. Listeners, thanks for joining us on The Bunker Daily. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Do follow us on your favourite podcast app, and you can get every edition of The Bunker early, plus merchandise and more, when you support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ahir Shah. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese, with assistant production by Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey, group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.